But first I'd like to pray. Father, as we gather here today, we thank you that you're the one who is the real audience. Uh, the worship service is not really about us, it's about you. We're here, Lord, to extol your name, to reflect on your greatness, to be reminded of your goodness, to celebrate your grace, and to make much of you. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have been able to do that today. And, uh, Lord, we just uh, pray that you would uh, help us in our moments together, that we might find that the medicine of the gospel is indeed that which is strong enough to cure our greatest disease. We pray that you might help us, Lord, to be filled with joy because of you, what you've accomplished through Christ. We pray that your word would come alive to us today. You would open our minds and that our hearts would receive it, and that you would be honored and praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that most people in the day and age in which we live are very uncomfortable with guilt. I would suggest, and I would imagine it's true, that guilt is seen by most people as an enemy to be avoided at all costs. And so many people have done whatever they can to avoid the pangs of guilt, of having a guilty conscience, of true moral guilt. And so uh, many of us have tried to escape that pain by using a very common technique called blame shifting, in which we attempt to try to shift the attention away from ourselves and what we have done onto somebody else and to point out their wrongdoings, point out the fact of their failings, point out the fact that they are guilty. Some of us also like to cope with our guilt by, sadly enough, self-mutilation. Others try to escape the misery of our soul in guilt through the abuse of alcohol and various drugs and even food. Other people choose the path of trying to sear their conscience and actually do sear their conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, they make their conscience ineffective. They shut off the alarm of their conscience so that they get to the point where they have absolutely no sorrow over anything they have done to offend a holy God or offend or sin against anybody else. They don't care. And some people have, of course, bought into the approach to life in which they don't want to deal with guilt, so therefore they don't deal with God. And they deny the existence of God and they deceive themselves into thinking that they are not accountable to the one who made all things before whom we all will stand one day. This morning we're going to consider the example of and the testimony of a man who refused to deal with his guilt, or at least for a while. Initially, this man was drawn away by the desires of his heart. He was duped, he was deceived, he was tricked. He was enticed by the bait that was put before him, and he found himself caught in the web of sin. Initially, having fallen into sin, he sought to cover up the sin, to hide it, to try to 
make sure that no one would be able to hold him accountable. And so therefore he sought to uh, make up all kinds of things. He tried to maneuver and scheme and smooth over his wrongdoing, but as time went on, his guilty conscience wouldn't let him go. He was inflicted with a heavy toll in his body, in his mind, and in his soul. And then one day, God graciously intervened and began to confront him right where he was. I love that song we sang today, Just As I Am. Well, the way he was, he was in need of help. And a godly man boldly confronted him regarding these sinful actions. And this man finally, finally confessed. Confessed his sin to God. He admitted his deep and profound regret for this, his uh, tremendous sin that he had committed against God and other people. And he poured his heart out to God. And in his penitential prayer, found in Psalm 51, we know that this man obviously is King David. In that psalm, penitential psalm, he cries out to God, acknowledging his sin, and he accepts full responsibility for what he did, for his actions. He accepted full responsibility for his murderous actions and for his immoral actions. And he begged God for forgiveness. He begged God to grant to him what he had lost in the meantime, and all of this being fallen into this particular sin pattern of his life. He had lost for some time, verse 12 of, of Psalm 51, the joy of his salvation no longer had been in his heart and life for quite a while. And later on, that same psalm in Psalm 51, as he repents over his sin, as he mourns over his sin and cries out to God for forgiveness, he says to God, Lord, I want to teach transgressors your ways, if you ever forgive me. What we have this morning in Psalm 32 is David fulfilling what he had promised to God out of a repentant heart that said, I am so sorrowful over my sin, I want to teach other people to not walk where I've walked. I want to teach people who are avoiding the need to confess their sin. I'm going to speak to them in a way from my own experience. I want to instruct them. I want to teach them about God's ways and the value and the benefit of confessing sin to God. So would you follow along with me as we look at Psalm 34? And I'm just going to, we only have time this morning for the first seven verses. And, uh, sorry, what did I say, 34? 32, thank you. Just want to see if you're still awake and if you're not looking at your bulletin. Don't look at your bulletin and don't listen to me half the time when I say the wrong text here. Okay. Psalm 32. A Psalm of David. A mascal. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. 
Selah. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you did forgive the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You do preserve me from trouble. You do surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Here in this great text of Scripture we find David again fulfilling his promise to teach transgressors God's ways. And now as a rejoicing, repentant sinner who has experienced God's amazing grace, who has experienced God's forgiveness, David is instructing sinners about the indescribable blessings that grace has extended to him and therefore has helped him realize what a blessing it is to finally confess our sins to God and be right and be real with him and be honest with him and to repent of those sins as we confess them. And so he, he provides to us three reasons it makes good sense for all of us who do sin and who struggle with sin to confess our sins to God and claim the promises of the gospel. Let's look at the first one, beginning in verses 1 and 2. He begins by saying that admitting the truth about our sin, to admit the truth about our sin is the first step toward discovering the blessings of forgiveness of sin in the gospel. As you read this text of Scripture, one of the first things that we can't help but notice is the fact that there are multiple use of synonyms for the word sinning. We have the word transgression, in my translation, transgression. We have the word sin. We have the word iniquity. Now, I'm not going to assume that David has in mind here the idea of Hebrew parallelism only, because I think there's more going on here than David just trying to say, well, I've already said that word, so now I'm going to use another word. I think he's trying at this point to reflect on the fact that as he's pondered his sin and as he's had a chance to really think about his sin, he has become aware of the fact that in all of his wicked thoughts, his desires and actions, he's going to use three descriptive terms to portray different aspects of sin as he's pondered it and thought a lot about it. For example, the word transgression, found in verse 1 and in verse 5. This is a word that thinks about his sin in regard to its, from the perspective of God or in his relationship toward God. The Hebrew word used here means literally departure. The word means literally going away. Transgression, going away. And it's used, of course, to denote rebellion against God. God himself and God's authority. So it's not too surprising then that in Isaiah 53, when Isaiah is describing the sin of his people and the need we have for someone to bear our sin, he says, all we like sheep have what? We have gone astray. That's the word. We have taken things in our own hands and we have defied our servant, I mean our shepherd, our king, our, our Lord. So sin, we could say, every sin no matter how 
well it's known by other people, no matter how it's a sin of the heart or sin of something we've committed, it's an action we've taken or something we've said, every sin is, a, is an act of cosmic treason against the God who has made all things, the God who rules over all things, the God who is king and Lord over all. And it's fair to say that David understands that all sin offends God. All sin defies his rule, his authority. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who sustains all things. And David initially, of course, was not confessing his sin because he was not admitting that he was way out of line, that he had veered away from what was appropriate as far as a person made the image of God. But he finally reached the conclusion after some time that his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder that he authorized to cover it up, to have this woman's husband killed, that those actions, as hurtful and as unloving as they were toward those individuals, must be seen as primarily the crimes committed against God. He says in, in Psalm 51, verse 4, he finally was able to say these words, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, what he had done was a despicable sin against those other people, but ultimately defiance against God is what sin really is. Going away. It's when we assert ourselves against God, when we demand that we are going to be king and do what we please and defy him the more we become aware of how our sin is so offensive to God, the more likely, hopefully, we will be willing to confess it. second word that David uses here in this text found in verses 1, 3, and 5, actually in verse 5 it's used twice, is the word sin. And this is a word that is related to the idea of relating to God's law, the law of God. The Hebrew word here is related closely to the Greek word that we have for sin, New Testament, which means falling short of a target. It means to miss the mark, uh, to not hit the bullseye, as it were. And, of course, the bullseye here is the idea of God's law, God's standards. And David is acknowledging that sin is serious because it is, by definition, a failure to live up to God's standards. Now, it means, obviously, we've not done what we've been commanded to do. I think so often we think of God's standards as don't do this, and so we step over the line, we do it. But, but I want to remind you, there's just as many areas of life that God has said, I want you to do this. His law is commanding us to do things, and we still resist and do not do it. For example, the loving God with the totality of our being, with all of our soul, our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. Those two commands themselves, which summarizes the entire law, those are areas that we break all the time. I've been thinking about trying to come to grips with the fact of how often we have breaking God's laws just by the sins of omission, that we, we don't do what we ought to be doing. And I will use an illustration of that crazy game which uh, almost was thrown down a number of times when I was playing it. It's called the Marble Maze. Have you ever played a Marble Maze? It has two knobs. One knob is controls a platform that goes this way, and then there's another knob that controls the platform that goes this way. And there's all these little, uh, uh, um, there's these little 
um, piece of wood that you can follow along with a marble, and any along the way, there's lots of holes. If you don't execute it correctly, the marble falls down through the hole and have to start over. And the goal is to go all the way around the whole entire way and get to the end. I don't know if I ever got past the fifth hole. I mean, it's unbelievable how difficult this thing is. And of course, what that means is I'm not executing properly. I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing in controlling the, the uh, two knobs in order to make it through the maze. And the fact is, if you think about how many times in a given day do we not execute, do we not follow through, do we not act in accordance with what God is encouraging us and prompting his people to do, to love him with all our heart, love our neighbor as ourselves. In 1 John, we read that everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. For sin is lawlessness. It means we're breaking God's laws. And of course, the consequences of breaking those laws, whether it's in word or thought or deed, is obviously serious. The judge of all the earth must punish every offense, every time his laws are trounced. But the bottom line is, he'll either punish us for them, or he will provide someone who will step in our place and absorb the punishment that we deserve. That's the second word is sin, relationship to the law of God. Third word is the word iniquity. And this has to do with, I believe, thinking about sin as it applies to us in relation to ourselves. Verses 2 and 5, again found in verse 5 twice. The Hebrew word that David uses here means twisted, corrupt, that which is crooked. You see, sin, along with corrupting the standards of God when we sin, we also know that sin speaks of the fact that we are twisted beings. There's something wrong with the inside of us. Our nature is bent toward evil rather than toward obedience with God. And therefore, sin is further evidence that our inner self is corrupted. Our hearts are distorted so that oftentimes we hate what is good and we love what is evil. I find it very interesting to meditate upon Matthew 15 in light of this text of Scripture as David is thinking about his own sin and to realize so many times in our culture today people talk about, well, you don't know where this person came from. You don't know what kind of situation he was facing at that moment. But look at Matthew 15, 19, and you'll notice Jesus defining a very out-of-step concept with what the world tends to think nowadays. He says that Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Out of the heart proceeds murders. Out of the heart proceeds adulteries, fornications, that is, having sexual relationships with someone to whom, to whom you're not married. Out of the heart proceeds thefts, false witness, and even blasphemy. These things don't come as a result of things that are happening outside of us. They come because that's what's coming out of our heart. Because that is our nature. And here is David having thought about his own twisted, corrupted nature, acknowledging that to God, and David finally owns up to this wrongdoing. He finally took the blame. He finally admitted the truth to God 
which is what confession is. And he humbly confessed his sin to God. And he admitted the breadth and the depth and the heinousness of his sin to God. So he humbly turns to God in desperation. And he knows that he's not, he's not able to remedy his guilt before God. And so he relies upon the gospel promises of God to deal mercifully with his sin in three ways. Look how this is taught in these first couple of verses. Look at the first thing he says, the word forgive, verse 1. This word actually means, literally, to lift off. To lift off. As in to lift off a heavy burden. David realized, of course, as he began to meditate and think about the weight of his sin, he realized, I'm carrying around a massive weight of guilt here. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've conducted myself. Look at what I've done to this woman. Look at what I've done to this man. Look what I've done to God's honor here. So he confessed in his transgressions to God. He's looking to God, desperately longing for him to lift this crushing weight of his guilt. I can't help but think of the image that John Bunyan so well described in his classic, uh, probably the most widely published book other than the Bible ever, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, in that book, he, just, he portrays <coughs> Pilgrim, who for the longest time is unable to make very good progress moving forward because he's carrying this heavy, heavy sack on his back. And I mean, he is weighed down. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever carried a backpack long enough on a trail when you're hiking on the Appalachian Trail, I did it back when I was in junior high school. It was about, I don't know, 25 pounds maybe. It felt like 75, of course. That's what it felt like at the time. But if you ever carry a heavy weight upon your back, all you start thinking about after a while is, oh, I've got to get, get off my feet. I can't carry this one step further. And Christian Pilgrim came to the point where he's bent down due to this heavy weight of his guilt. And upon hearing the gospel, he says he comes to the point where he sees the cross and he looks at the cross and the heavy, oppressive weight of this sin and guilt upon his back falls off his back. And it says it rolls down the hill and enters into a sepulcher a tomb that's opened and disappears. What a beautiful portrait of what it means to have the loosening of the bonds of the heaviness of our guilt because of Christ and his work on the cross. When God forgives our sins, we are promised that our sins will no longer be brought against us. They will no longer be held against us. Listen to these promises of Isaiah 43, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, what does that mean? You go this direction, you go that direction, they'll never meet. They'll never come back together. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I wonder, have you knelt at the foot of the cross? 
Have you repented of your sin? Have you claimed Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf on that cross, in his death and in his resurrection from the dead? As your only hope in having the weight of your sin fully and finally lifted from your own shoulders, your own heart, your own conscience. The burden of your sin has been lifted by God because why? It's been placed on Jesus Christ, God's Savior from sin. What a great, glorious truth that is, the lifting up the heavy weight. Second word that's found also in this text, telling us further insights into the glories of the gospel, is found in the latter parts of verse 1 here, the word covered, whose sin is covered. I think what he's alluding to here is the image that, of course, many of the Jews at that time would be very familiar with. The Once a year, the blood of the bull and the goat was sprinkled on top of the mercy seat there on the Ark of the Covenant. That blood of animals was applied to the mercy seat, which was directly above. The mercy seat was located here inside this box, and inside the box are located those tablets of the law. So that the law is constantly giving us the standards, reminding us of how far we've fallen short. The mercy seat is applying the blood, so therefore there is mercy shown to us by God. There's payment being paid for those who break the law. This symbolic gesture, of course, portrayed what the atoning blood of Jesus later accomplished once for all. With the covering of blood of a substitute, the children of Israel by faith were shielded from the wrath of God. And similarly, everyone who repents of sin Everyone who trusts in Jesus, whose blood was shed as your substitute, is shielded from God's just judgment. 1 John chapter 2 has a wonderful reminder of this truth, using a word that seems a little bit confusing. What in the world is he talking about? The word propitiation. It's not a word that we are real familiar with, but it's a wonderfully rich word, which essentially means a God-satisfying sacrifice. A God-satisfying sacrifice. So if you read 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, If any believer sins, and by the way, he's writing to believers here, If any believer sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself, he alone, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the God-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. He shed his blood, he appeased the wrath of God, and that shedding of blood shields us from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our lawless ways. There's no better protection from the wrath of God than to be covered by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, our Savior and sin-bearer. I remember hearing years ago the illustration made, I think it was a part of Evangels of Explosion, they said, imagine if you take your Bible and you use it as an illustration say to somebody, if this book represented the, life of, the story of your life, beginning in page one, the day you're born, and the last part is still being written because you're still alive, but it records everything about you, everything, from when you were uh, in grade school and early on and toddler years all the way up through your teen years to your present year, wherever you are, everything about you you've ever thought, everything you ever did, in secret or known, it's all recorded right here. And the story of your life is right here. And obviously, if you have that story of your life, and you're going to try to have a relationship with the God who created you, who's holy, there's obviously a real problem. The problem is this record about your life. Your sin is an issue between you and the holy God. 
But God, because of his great love, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is God and man, lived a perfect life, and Jesus took your sin upon himself. So the Bible says, all we have, like sheep have gone astray, each one has gone his own way. So I've got a long list of records of what's done to offend a holy God. But the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So the question you ask is, where's your sin? It's upon Christ. And of course the story is the fact that in this great idea of covering sin is to remind us of what Jesus did. He is the one who was the God-satisfying sacrifice, the bearing of our sin upon himself. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Third word here quickly, I want to move on. Uh, Verse 2, it says he does not impute, he does not count iniquity. I preached a whole sermon on this not long ago, so you should uh, check that out, Romans 4. But the phrase here, of course, is a bookkeeping term. Someone who keeps meticulous records. There's a log going on how much you owe God because of the debt of your sin. And as this record is being kept, this ledger, what we read about in the gospel is that God is so gracious and God is so merciful that he writes the debt that we owe to God, this long list of our debt, indebtedness because of our sin that we need to make right with him, that has all now been transferred from our record onto Christ's ledger. And put onto our ledger and our record is the righteousness, the wealth of righteousness that Jesus Christ owns and has, and that's written onto our ledger. We are reckoned, we are counted as those who are not guilty because of this imputation. And therefore, it's great ground of imputation of Christ's righteousness is not by works that somehow we become better people, it's because we are trusting in a Savior. It's His righteousness by faith we receive, on, counted on our record. With all these images and terms, the psalmist then is admitting what? He's thought long enough, he's thought hard enough, and humbly enough that he admits that his sin is indeed quite serious. It is highly offensive to God. And therefore, he admits that to him, and in so doing, he is rejoicing over the fact, the marvelous blessing that God has bestowed upon him as he confessed humbly his sin and turned to God. And everyone who relies upon Jesus' payment on the cross on their behalf, God promises and provides forgiveness, covering of sin, no longer counting our sins against us. Hallelujah. That is the good news of the gospel. And David is saying, why live in secrecy? Why live cut off from God? Why try to deny your guilt? He's saying, I embrace my guilt, and the guilt has led me to a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's encouraging others to similarly confess their sin. Secondly, unconfessed sin, verses 3 to 5, leads to misery of soul and body. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you did forgive the guilt of my sin. Between the time that David began this illicit relationship with this married woman and the murderous plot that he eventually conspired and pulled off 
and the time that he finally then confessed his sin, between this period of time, David was in agony. He was not a happy camper. Sometimes sin will whisper in our eyes, this is going to make you so happy, this is going to feel so good, this is going to be so delightful. The fact is, those of us who know about God, those of us who have a tender conscience toward God, those of us who know and appreciate the generosity and grace and love of God, sin sells us a lie. And what actually happens then is that David said, rather than making him strong and vigorous and fulfilling his life, it zapped his strength. Read the description here. A hot, muggy, miserable day. I can think of one in my mind that comes off immediately to my mind. We used to go to Hilton Head, South Carolina. It's a beautiful place, a wonderful place. Our family, my parents had a wonderful place, a condo that they could use on a regular basis. So we went down as a family years ago when our kids were small, had a little family reunion down there, and we thought, let's go play some tennis. At 8 o'clock in the morning, we're trying to get out and enjoy a round of tennis and it is so blasted hot and humid. We lasted maybe 20 minutes. It was so miserable. Sorry. I mean, I'm sure people live there. It's a wonderful place. But I am a wimp when it comes to misery of humidity and heat. It just takes the strength right out of you. Nobody enjoys doing anything because the heat's radiating off the court, whatever. So David is saying the same thing here. His body is just wasting away. Commentators have wondered if David maybe had a high-grade fever. I don't think so. Perhaps he was sick, but clearly the hand of God was heavy upon him. We don't know all the details, but you can't miss the fact that he's describing a condition of being in distress, a condition of being in anguish. Until he admitted his sin to God and agreed with God that his sin was serious offense toward him, he was miserable. In verse 5, David points out the nature of the forgiveness of God, and this is what I want to talk about and just remind you of this wonderful truth, that the forgiveness that God extended to him was immediate and it was complete. Immediate and complete. David confessed all his sin and God forgave it all. What an encouragement. What an incentive this is for us that when our conscience bears witness that we have offended God, that we should therefore what? Admit that we have done so, confess our sins, and flee to Christ. We are not told in scriptures that we're to wait when we commit sin, and therefore we're to just sort of wait, and then we're going to do penance after we confess our sins, and wait and wait, and wonder if we've been forgiven. Never do we read God saying in his word, confess your sins and then perform a number of good works of piety and then wait and wait and wait some more. And even after you die, you still got to wait some more. You got to spend time in purgatory. You have to have all this stuff dealt with, put in its place, completely cleansed. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the promises of the gospel. The joy of salvation is the overflow that comes from the heart of the soul who knows for sure and is trusting in the promises of the gospel that there is immediate and complete forgiveness of our sins before God based on Christ's full and completed work of atoning, atonement on the cross in his death and his resurrection from the dead, period. 
So the question I ask myself, the question I ask all of us today is, what holds you back from admitting your sin to God? Why does not God not hear us confessing our sins more often? Why are we delaying, like David, day after day, week after week? Some of you say, well, I believe God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. Hogwash. Are you saying you have a higher standard than God? Are you saying there's something that needs to be done more than Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins? You've got to do something else to add to that? Confess your sins. Enter into the blessedness of God's full and immediate forgiveness. You say, well, I'm still rather skeptical, and I'm sure there's some of you who are that way. I'm skeptical. I don't know. You're having a hard time believing that God's forgiveness can be so freely granted. You're like, come on, this is too good to be true. Bingo, that's grace. Let me just remind you, if you have a hard time in this area, you find yourself having, I have a terrible image of God in my mind, and all I can see is he's wagging his finger at me. All I can hear is guilty, guilty. I'm ashamed. I can't look at him in his face. I can't look up to the Christ. Let me urge you to go to Luke 15 and meditate on the heinousness of the sins of both of those sons. It's the, it's the parable of the two sons, not the prodigal son. It's both sons. Both of them are sinning horrendously against their father. And here's the father whose one son had demanded he get his inheritance, which means I wish you were rather dead, not alive. He takes this money, goes off and does whatever he wants and lives a life apart from the family as if he says, I'm no longer part of this family. And God brings him down to the point where he realizes what? I am a miserable wretch. I got nothing going on here. I've made a mess of my life. I'm just going to go back and live as a slave for my father. Because now I can see that he really was a good man, a wonderful man. So he goes back. And while he's far away off, what happens? The father doesn't just stand there and put his hands on his hips like, I'm going to let him have it, which is what the whole community is expecting him to do. The community is expecting him to get a beating, not only by the Father, but all the people in the community because he's brought shame to this man, his family. What does the Father do? He runs out and greets him and kisses him, hugs him, and celebrates him bringing the blessings of full sonship and full restoration and the benefits of a beloved child. I mean, it's just so wonderful to be reminded that that's what it means to be forgiven by Christ and to be welcomed by God. My, my, my concern is, and my, my, my suggestion and urging of all of us, is don't wait any longer. Don't be like David. Somehow thinking you can just avoid dealing with it. Deal with it. Come back to Christ. He's waiting to forgive you right now. That's what this whole table is meant to do, is to remind us there's forgiveness for you. Enter into the joy of your salvation. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from not, all, not some, not most, not just the biggies, but all unrighteousness. Praise God. Real quickly, point number three. 
Unconfessed sin limits our impact on others and hinders our spiritual growth. This is found in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You do preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David includes this admonition where now he's going to start speaking to the people he's writing to. Not talking now primarily to God. He's those who are reading it. And he's saying, listen, seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't put this off. He wants to make sure that he makes up for lost time by pointing to other people about God's grace and the blessings of being forgiven. And until we personally and humbly confess our sins, we're in no position. Hear me out now. Until we have ourselves confessed our sins to God, until we've humbled ourselves and made things right with God, gotten on the same page with Him in terms of what our sin is like, we're in no position to urge other people to come to Christ for cleansing and for restoration. Once we admit our sins to God and we're restored and forgiven, we're able then to minister to other people with honesty and with integrity. I wonder if sometimes, is that why sometimes we feel like there's not a sense of delight in witnessing for Christ? We tend not to speak about Him publicly. Why? Because maybe we still ourselves, we're not walking in the Spirit. We're not walking in close harmony with God through Jesus Christ because we're what? There's unconfessed sin in our lives. David also points out in verse 7, having admitted his sins to God and God completely forgiving him, his relationship with God, having walked through that process, has now been deepened. He now understands more of the profoundly satisfying nature of God's grace and God's mercy. Instead of hiding from God, look what David says in verse 7. Instead of trying to cover up his guilt and trying to manage his little world that he's created of his secret sin and he's trying to make sure that nothing is known about that and he's got it working the way he wants to work it. Now he says what? Instead of doing that, he says, now God, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs and shouts of deliverance. Selah. He's saying, I'm not running away. You are my life. You are the one I am looking to to make me secure, to, make me, uh, to preserve me when I'm facing. I'm not going to run away from you. I'm running toward you because of the greatness of your love, mercy, and grace that's shown to me. A child who feels welcomed and loved by his father is running to him when there's a problem, a concern. I find it interesting is I have to conclude at this point in this psalm, but it ends with the word selah. I heard years ago, a pastor came to that and he's reading the psalms. I think it actually is a musical term. I think it means pause. So hold, hold it right there just for a second. But he went on to say, I, he says, I like to think of it this way. When you come to the word selah in a psalm, think of it saying, pause. Can you beat that? And I think that's what David is saying here. Think about what it is to want to, having experienced the grace of God in Christ, to know what it is to be fully forgiven, and then to know what? What a grace, a wonderful thought it is to spread that to others and to know God more deeply yourself. That's part of the growth as a true believer. Let's pray. <clears throat>
Father, as we prepare now to come to this table, the Lord's table, a table that has been set by Christ at great cost, we pray that you might fill our hearts with a willingness to respond as your Spirit would lead us to respond. For some of us, Lord, it means we need to confess sin. We need to just be honest with you. We need to come clean. We need to no longer hide or diminish or somehow um, excuse away our sin. So, Lord, may this be a time when we honestly are saying the same thing as you say about our sin. But, Lord, having done that, I pray that your grace, the grace of the gospel, will then minister to those of us who feel broken over our sin, that you'll provide to us once again the reminder that if you should mark sin, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, the Scripture says, that you may be feared. Lord, teach us what it means to fear you anew and afresh, to be in awe of you and the grace that you provide to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was slain for us, that we might be fully and immediately forgiven and therefore put on put in a situation where we can therefore enjoy you and be in close relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.